Are you interested in cosmology? Yeah, it has nothing to do with makeup. <laughs> cosmology is a heavy subject. And it's uh, you know it's a kind of an advanced, uh, sophisticated uh, subject. But a Jew is supposed to be advanced and sophisticated because we're supposed to have answers to everything. We're supposed to know all the secrets of creation because we're the chosen people. So if you're in the mood, we'll spend a little time with this heavy subject. But I think fascinating. The origins of the universe, which um, the theory of evolution is supposed to explain, is a fascinating issue. It's a fascinating question. Where did the world come from? Evolution basically gave up. Quit trying to answer the question. Because the best they could do is trace it back to subatomic particles and some gas. But the origins of the universe, they, they have no clue. So the best they can do is tell you that whatever it is that created the world, it took a long time. And if you have any questions about how that could happen, okay, it took a longer time. So if you can't fit it into 12 billion years, so it was 15 billion years. That doesn't work, all right, 20 billion, whatever you want. So it's a little disappointing that uh, this fundamental question, an exciting question, where did the world come from, how was the world created, is not getting answered. So let's look to Torah and see what the Torah says. How was the world created? And the reason this is relevant is because when we know how the world was created, it helps us appreciate why it was created. And that's relevant. Because we're not going to go and create another world. So the how is really not that relevant. But if it contributes to why, if we know why the world was created, then living takes on a whole new meaning. So let's start with some basic um, theology 101. God created the world. What does that mean in simple language? In simple language it means that before the world was created, there was nothing. There was no world. So how did anything begin? The answer is, there was an original existence, an original being, from whom all existence derives. Which means all created existence is a product, but the creator always was. So there had to be a being who didn't need to be created. Because if he needed to be created, well, then we're back to our question again. So how did it all begin? So we have to begin with what is called an original being. Original means a real being that doesn't need to be created. We have to assume that such a thing exists, otherwise nothing can exist. 
Now, this original being, this real, true existent being, decided to create a world. Why would he create a world? So Hasidus tells us, God's desire to create a world precedes any reasons. Before there were reasons, God wanted to create the world. A true desire, an original desire, is not the result of a reason. The things you want that are really true to you, your true desires in life, do not come from a reason. They are not the product of a reason. They are true desire, and desire comes without reason, before reason. A person says, I want a car. That's my desire. I want a car. Why? Well, I need to get around. I have to go downtown, uptown. I got places to go. I need a car. Well, then you don't really need a car. You need to go places. If you didn't need to go to those places, you wouldn't need a car. So your desire for a car is not basic, it's not real, it's not fundamental, it's not original. You need it only for a reason. Then it's not a real need. Then it's not a real desire. What would be a real desire? A true need, a true want. Person wants to live. Person wants to survive. Why? Because life is wonderful? And a person whose life is a little less than wonderful? And by the way, when does a person desperately want to survive? When his life is not so wonderful. <laughs> because his, his life is being threatened. So under terrible stress, and under terrible threat, and under pain, and suffering, the person wants to live. Why? Now you can say, because if the pain would go away, life would be great. How does this person know that life is great? From past experience? A fetus wants to live. Why? A newborn baby wants to live, will struggle, will fight to survive. Why? For a good reason? He doesn't have any reasons. <laughs> I get spiritual yet. Right now we're talking about, about creation. So the desire to live is not the result of a reason. You don't want to live because of a reason. That's too dangerous. That's too flimsy. If you want to live only for a reason, what if that reason goes away? Then you don't want to live anymore? So a person says, you know, I used to be suicidal, but I'm better now. I found a reason to live. Ah, you're still suicidal. You're suicidal. You need a reason to live, and you're suicidal. No, not you need a reason to live. We all need a reason to live. You need a reason to want to live? To want to live, you don't need a reason. And if you do, you're suicidal. Then you don't really want to live. Because how good can the reason be? 
It's only a reason. So the wants that we have that come for a reason, out of a reason, those are not real wants. Those are called secondary wants. You have an idea, and that idea creates a want. Like you take a kid to a, to a toy store, and he sees this thing on the shelf, and he says, Oh, I want one of those. I said, Why didn't you tell me on the way to the store that you wanted one of these? I never knew you wanted one of these. Now, neither did he. And he didn't want it until he saw it. That's not a real want. So a real want comes from the essence long before you see what you want or have a reason to want it. Another thing. If you're a logical person, a reasonable person, and you have a logical reason to want something, then in essence, you don't have the freedom of choice to want it or not want it. Because if your mind says, this is the logical and the right thing, well, then you have to do it. So if logic dictates that you need one of those things, it takes away your freedom of choice. Then you must. If you're an intelligent person, you can't ignore the logic. So the will that comes from a reason is not voluntary and therefore also not your true want. It's almost like it was forced on you. The logic or the reason forced you. So a guy who desperately needs a car, he desperately needs a car because he's got to get downtown. Well, so the need to get downtown is forcing you to want a car. It's no longer your choice. Now, of course, we can't say any of this about God. In the beginning, when God decided to create the world, what was a compelling reason for him to do that? A compelling reason? There wasn't any. We're talking about the earliest stages of creation before there was a reason. And also, a good reason would mean that God was compelled by the reason to create the world. Well, then he's not God. Because God can't be compelled so if a good reason compels God to create the world, then that reason is God. And the creator is just a carpenter. So what conclusion do we come to? In the beginning, God decided that he wants to create a world. For what reason? For no reason. He desired to create a world because that's his desire. It didn't come from a reason. It didn't come from outside of him. Nothing made him do it. So in simple terms, why did he create the world? Because he could. Because <laughs> that's his desire. And to say, well, well, why does he desire it? Why does a fish swim? That's him. That's his desire. See, and this is the deeper meaning 
when we say God created the world out of nothing. What does it mean God created the world out of nothing? I mean, he had no bricks, he had no, he had no clay. What, what didn't he have that would have helped him create the world? It seems like a silly statement. It sounds redundant. It's like saying, uh, you made that dish from scratch out of nothing. Well, from scratch means out of nothing. So what does it mean he created the world out of nothing? If he created the world, well, obviously there was nothing there yet. The answer is, he created it out of nothing means he created it simply because he wanted to and not out of any compelling reason. Make sense so far? Yes? No? Whatever. No. Now, what does this do to creation? Does it make creation more important or less important? More significant or less significant? More significant. Because? Because if God created the world for a good reason, then the world is only as significant as that reason. But if God created the world because that is his personal desire, then the world is as significant as him. That is a huge difference, a huge difference, because the best reason in the world is finite. Logic is finite. Also, a reason means an objective. It's like, I need the car because I got to get downtown. Okay, once you get downtown, well, then you don't need the car anymore. So if God created the world for a good reason, which means he wants to achieve something, well, what's going to happen when he achieves it? Then he doesn't need the world anymore. But when we're told that God created the world out of an internal desire, well, God doesn't change, which means that he will always want this world. It's not a means to an end. And so if people are worried about... Uh, nuclear disaster and the world destroying itself and coming to an end, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Now, for human beings, when you have a need that you can't explain, if you have something you want or need that you can't rationalize, does that mean that it's unimportant, insignificant? When a husband says to his wife, can you please explain why this bothers you? Why do you need that? Why are you this way? Can you explain this? And she can't explain it. Well, if you can't explain it, then obviously isn't very important. So either make sense or give it up. The exact opposite is true. If you can explain your need, well, then I can argue with you. You need a car to get downtown? Train is much faster. There goes your whole argument. So if you need something for a reason, I can come up with a better reason to explain how you don't need it. How, in fact, you need the exact opposite. That trivializes your need. But if you have no reason for your need, you can't explain why you need it, you don't know why you need it, that's a real need. That you can't play with. 
That's the real you. Now let's understand the definition of existence. God brought the world into existence because before he created the world, it didn't exist. So what happened when God brought the world into existence? God created existence. What does it mean to exist? What wasn't before and then was after he started to create? I don't mean tables and chairs. We're talking about the earliest states or the earliest steps in creation. That first moment, that transition moment from non-existence to existence, what came into being? What was created? Here's the definition of existence in the highest worlds on the highest level. Existence means you stopped being nothing. You went from nothing to something. What does it mean, nothing to something? There's the principle that says either you are or you're not. If you are, you are. If you're not, you're not. That was the first thing God created. Let me say this again. The first thing God created was the principle of existence. What is the principle of existence? That something is, is, that which is not, is not. That's the first rule of existence. You either are or you're not. You can't be both. Before creation, that was not true. It wasn't either or. So this rule, this principle, it's either yes or no, you either are or you're not. That was the first principle that God created. There were still no tables and chairs. There was only the principle. You're either existing or you're not existing. There's yes and no, positive and negative. That was the principle of creation. The second principle of creation and we're talking very early in creation now. The second principle of creation was effect and influence. That which exists must have an effect, and it must be affected. It's one of the rules of existence. Anything that exists must affect the things that are less than it and be influenced by the things that are above it. So every existence receives and gives. Receives from above, gives to what is below. So there's a give and take that is an essential definition and principle of existence. And then there's a third principle that makes up basically the plan of creation. The third principle is increase and decrease. This influence that one thing has on another, what does it produce? An increase or a decrease? So sometimes there's a thing that influences you and makes you bigger. Sometimes there's an influence that makes you smaller. Some things will build up your ego. Some things will humble you. And the effect you have on things around you will either be constructive or destructive. Increase or decrease. More or less. 
When you take these three principles, you have basically created the blueprint for creation. That's it. And that's why the Mishnah says the world stands on three pillars. Now we got a serious problem. We just talked ourselves into a big problem. The first principle of creation is you either exist or you don't. That's the principle of creation. That's what God created way back in the beginning. Now the question becomes, does God exist? Do you hear what I'm saying? If creation means bringing existence into being, and existence means if you are, you are, and if you're not, you're not. So what's with God? He is or he's not. So when you say God exists, it doesn't make sense anymore. No, no, existence is what he created. So what about him? Did I lose you somewhere? Hmm? This thing exists? Yeah. Does God exist? Same way? Now, originally we thought, well, this thing exists, but it's very small. God exists, he's very big. That's the difference between God and a chair. <laughs> but now we realize there's a much greater difference between God and a chair. A chair either exists or it doesn't. And God, what? <laughs> huh? You can't say the same thing about God. You can't say, well, either he exists or he doesn't. Because that's the beginning of creation. So you know what it is about God? He exists and he doesn't exist. Let me, let, yeah, let me, let me, you cannot say that God exists because if he doesn't exist, then he isn't. That's what we mean by a true being, an original being. An original being means there are no rules that govern him. Either you're in or you're out. You better exist or you're nothing. There are no rules that govern God. So does he exist? If he wants to. Yeah, but then if he doesn't exist, then he isn't. No, that's true of a chair. We are told over and over again that when you ask, what is God? The answer is, no thought can comprehend him. Now you see why? No thought can comprehend him, not because he's so big. He's so powerful. That's a God created in our image. So what's great about God? That he is smarter than Einstein? <laughs> that he's bigger than the Grand Canyon? No. Bigger than the whole universe? This is silly talk. He's the creator. He's not bigger than the universe. He's infinitely different. Now we understand what that difference is. Everything in this world, even the most refined, even the most, it either exists or it doesn't. It's governed by that rule. And therefore, it has to be influenced and influencing, and therefore it can be enlarged or decreased. Can you say that about God? You can't say God can become bigger or smaller. 
You can't say God can be influenced. You can't say that God exists. Because existence is what God created. And if they get to the punchline, it'll make more sense. So now, if God does exist, it's by choice. So now if we're going to say, all right, so bottom line, does God exist? Answer, well, of course. Because if he didn't exist, then how did other existence come? So of course, all existence comes from his existence. Because if he doesn't exist, then there is no creator. But what does it mean that he exists? He exists voluntarily. He created a world and gave it existence, but the existence is not voluntary. Because either you exist or you're not. Which means like this. Before God decided to exist, what was he? Before he decided to exist, what was he? Hmm? Try this again. God's existence is voluntary. So he chose to exist. Before he chose to exist, what was he? One more time, one more time. Try this. Listen carefully. God chose to exist. What do we know about him? What was he before he chose to exist? Non-existent and he was there, but he didn't exist. Then what was he? He wasn't an existence. What was he? What we know about God in the first, earliest, highest, most primordial state is that before he existed, he wanted, right? Because he chose to exist. So before he existed, what do we know about him? Whatever he was, he wants. So all we know, again, all we know about God in the beginning is that Whatever he is, he wants. He chooses. And he chose to exist. Why did he choose to exist? So that he could create the world. He chose to exist in order to give existence to that which did not exist. Now, what is the significance of this? When a person considers living a Jewish life, when a person is confronted with commandments, what is their first reaction? People say, I don't believe in God, I don't, I don't have faith, I don't know. Nobody has a problem with God. You can't have a problem with God. Because God is not a matter of opinion. So, so what do you think? You think there's a God? <laughs> I think there is or there isn't. Why are you asking me? Nobody has a problem with God. The problem most people have is with God's commandments. And it's not the commandment itself that we have a problem with. Nobody ever said, keep Shabbos? Ew, yuck. What's, what's wrong with keeping Shabbos? Celebrate Pesach? Oh, no. Why no? The problem people have with a commandment is when you say to them, God wants you to do this. 
And they say, wait, 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 come on. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, if God is God, what do you mean he wants? What does he want? You don't want if you're God. And look at what he wants. <laughs> he wants me to eat the cow and not the camel? Come on, give me a break. That's why you have people who say, oh, I love to serve God. I'm very God conscious. I'm very aware of God. I thank God every day. He wants me to keep kosher? Don't be ridiculous. Not because kosher is ridiculous, but because it's ridiculous to think that he wants. Particularly if you study and you find out God's greatness and what infinity means and what omnipotence means, and you're really impressed with God. He's awesome. And then you turn around and say, yeah, and, and, and he gets very upset if you eat the wrong sandwich. No, come on. Does not compute. But now, all of a sudden, understanding the origins of the universe, what is the origin of the universe? Where did the creation begin? What is its origin? A choice that God made. God chose to exist. In other words, all existence, all reality, including God's existence, all began because he wants. So we can't be surprised when all of a sudden God shows up and says, I want. Well, of course. And this want is not something God came up with 2,000 years after he created the world and he was getting bored. So he decided to make up a bunch of laws. This will of God is more real, more true, more absolute than his existence. I put it in different words. What he, his want, the things he wants are more real than his existence. There's an enigmatic statement in the Talmud. The Talmud is explaining or, or interpreting a verse in Torah, and the Talmud says that what God is basically saying in that verse is, I wish they would abandon me, just keep the mitzvahs. Why would anybody keep the mitzvahs if they abandon God? If there is no God, why should I keep kosher? And God says, no, no, forget about me, just keep kosher. How does that make sense? Well, here's the deeper meaning. I wish they would abandon me, my existence, because my want, the mitzvahs, are much more real. There was a time, not literally, but there was a, a stage, there was a time when God did not yet exist. Was there a time when God did not yet want? No. Because his want is him. Existing? Well, that's a condition he got himself into. Before that, he wasn't existing. What was he? He was wanting. So his will is more real than his existence. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a minute. Before he existed, he wanted. Who wanted? What wanted? 
Where's the answer? God. Well, what's that? You can't ask that. You can't ask me what is God. God is God. But what do we know about God that he wants? So all of a sudden, do God's will, fulfill God's will. Well, that word suddenly takes on enormous proportion. God's will. Oh, you're talking about the beginning of everything? Yeah. So when God came down to Mount Sinai to tell us what he wants, what was he really telling us? He told us what he wants us to do. What was he really telling us? He is telling us what he really is. Because up until that time, the world had discovered that God exists. And that was considered quite an achievement. Right? Avraham discovered God when he was three years old, and he went around telling everybody that there's a true God in heaven, and the idols are false gods, and they wanted to kill him. But what was Avraham's great achievement? Monotheism. What did he discover? That God exists. Well, that's wonderful. God came down to Mount Sinai and said, yeah, that's nice, but let me tell you who I really am. That I exist? Well, yeah. But what am I really? I want. Before I existed, I want. Does this make a little sense? Why does he want? If I gave you a good reason, would it make sense? Why does he want? And what did he want? Nothing existed. How do you want something that doesn't exist? So to say, well, God wanted to talk to somebody. He needed to talk to somebody. There was nobody, so there's no need to talk to that somebody. So you create a person and then you create a need to talk to him? Here's an example. You want to get married? <laughs> yes. Sometimes when you ask people you want to get married, they say yes. You say, well, who do you want to marry? They say, well, uh, that's the $64,000 question. Then what do you mean you want to get married? To whom? Well, I don't know to whom. I just want to get married. How do you want something before it exists? There's no one in your life you want to marry, but you want to be married. What does that mean? It means it's not a person who makes you want to be married. Oh, actually, it's your mother. <laughs> what makes you want to be married? Because you're supposed to be married. Supposed to be married. Because there's no reason. There's no reason. Nobody knows why we get married. We haven't come up with a single good reason yet. Don't have to get married for that. So why do we want to get married? It's because that's the way it is. It's like you want to live? For what reason? Well, no, for not any reason, any particular reason. You just want to live. 
And because I want to live, I start to use my mind and I come up with reasons. But you know what happens when I don't want to live? God forbid. What happens with a person who loses all desire for life? The first thing he'll tell you is, I can't think of a single reason to live. Because when you don't want, then your mind doesn't work. Sit a kid down in front of a book he doesn't want to read. It's not going to happen. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't recognize the words. It doesn't make sense to him. His brain is not in gear because he doesn't want. But you get a kid to want, you don't even have to teach him. He'll work it out himself because he wants. So want makes the brain work. If you don't want, the brain doesn't work. So if you don't already want to live, how is your brain going to come up with a good reason? It won't. Your brain doesn't go where your will hasn't gone first. I had a little experience just right this week. Give you a little guided tour of Kingston Avenue. When you come out the door downstairs and you go to the left, about four doors down, there's a shoe repair. It's been there for years. I never knew. I walk up and down that street and right past that store three times a day, every day. I never saw that store. But my shoe came undone and I needed repair. So I said to somebody, where do I get my shoe repaired? He says, right there. I said, right where? There's no shoe repair. You walk past it three times a day. You never. When it's not relevant to you, when you're not interested, then you don't see it. If you're not already interested, it won't make sense. Your mind won't have a reason. Reasons come from wanting. It can't create the wanting. So if you don't want shoe repair, you can walk past it every day, three times a day. You won't see it. It's not in your world. When you want to live, oh, you come up with brilliant reasons. Because your brain now goes into gear and starts churning out good arguments. You want to get married, your brain goes into gear. You don't want to get married? Can't think of a single reason. Now, we make the mistake. We assume that you don't want to get married because you can't think of a single reason. Okay? That's backwards. You can't think of a reason because you don't want to get married. Now, people say, uh, I can't think of a single reason to be religious. Well, of course not. If you don't want to be religious, you're not going to think of a single reason. A person decides, you know, I, I want to be religious. All of a sudden, you've got reasons coming out of your ears, which is a problem, by the way. A person becomes religious overnight. They, they got inspired. All of a sudden, they're in the mood. And they decide, you know, hey, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. I'm becoming religious. They become preachers. They got reasons for everything, explanations for everything, and they go on and on and on, and everybody runs away from them. Like, enough already. Stop it. With the... Because when you discover a new interest, your brain goes into gear, and suddenly it's producing arguments and reasons and explanations and justifications. Ad nauseum. 
we are created in God's image. We also have these three principles of creation. We have intellect, we have emotions, and we have behavior. And each one of them comes as a set of three. Intellect comes in three, Chachma, Bina, Das. Emotions come in three, Chesed, Gvura, Teferis. Behavior comes in three, thought, speech, and deed. What are these three things? The first principle in our lives is yes or no. That's our mind. Our mind is in charge of the yes and no questions. Is it true or is it not true? Is it right or is it wrong? Is it good or is it bad? Yes or no? That's what our mind is good for. Suppose we decide that something is yes. Then our emotions kick in. What do the emotions do? The emotions are affected and, in, and affect others. There's a give and take. Once I decide that something is, then I have an attraction. I'm affected by it. I'm influenced by it. I'm changed by it. If my mind decides no, then that influences me and affects me. I don't want it. I'm afraid of it. I run away. When my mind decides that something is yes, it's good, it's right, it's kosher, but whatever, now I got to go tell everybody. Now I want everybody to know. Now I want to influence the whole world and teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And then the third thing happens to me. When I am affected, I either become bigger or smaller. I either become stronger, more confident, or I become humble and less confident. Either I am enlarged or I am diminished. And either one of them could be good. Either one of them could be bad. But one of the two is going to happen because a reaction involves increase or decrease. And that basically is the story of our lives. What do you know about right and wrong? How are you responding to what you know is right? And how are you influencing others? And is this making you bigger or smaller? Those are the only questions you need to answer in life. All other questions are irrelevant. Are we equipped for life? The average American, does he know right from wrong? The average American, when he knows that something is right, does he do it? If he knows that something is wrong, does he run away? All right, let's talk about teenagers. The average teenager in the United States, does he know right from wrong? No. If you tell him right from wrong, does he do it? Does he respond? Is he affected? No. When he does something really dumb and stupid and hurts other people, does it diminish him? No. Makes him more arrogant. Is this kid's life messed up? By every definition of the word, his life is messed up. 
the three fundamental principles of existence he's got wrong. He doesn't know right from wrong, yes or no. He doesn't allow things to affect him. His mother is upset and worried, can't be bothered, can't be influenced. And when he should be humbled, he's more arrogant. And when he should have the confidence, he doesn't. He has no life. Where do you begin? How do you fix this? Well, unless it's dangerous, and then you just have to lock him up. If it's not dangerous, the way to fix it is you got to start at the top. What is the top? What is the beginning of all existence? The beginning of all existence is right and wrong, yes or no, in or out. In other words, rigid facts. Not emotional experiences. That is not going to solve the problem. If the mother is going to cry and you're going to take the kid to, uh, to Auschwitz and let him see, it'll be an emotional experience. It's not going to change anything. You've got to start from the top. And the top is a very simple principle. Yes or no. And if it's yes, then it's yes. And if it's no, then it's no. That's got to be the beginning of everything. So when a kid says, what's, what's wrong with living together? I don't know. It's wrong. Yeah, what's so bad? I don't know. It's wrong. See, we're not ready for the second step yet. You haven't gotten the first step. It is wrong. It's a no. It's on the negative side. It's in the negative column. It's one of the no's. Well, why? What's wrong? How come? Sorry. No is no. Wrong is wrong. Now, what happens if a mother tries to reason with her kid? Well, you, 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 you're going to get pregnant. It's the end. She's lost the argument. No, it's wrong because, I mean, he's going to dump you or she's going to cheat on you. And she, you ruined everything and you haven't gotten to first base. First base is... Wrong is wrong, not because you can think of a reason. Wrong is wrong, because real is real. True is true. Fake is fake. Why? I don't know why. A tree is a tree. How come? You're insane. Only a person on drugs can ask such a question. Oh, there's a tree. How come? I've heard. How come what? Uh, how come? When a kid says, but I want to. In other words, there is no reason, no argument, no, you just want to. Well, yeah, in exactly the same way, it's just wrong. You just want to, and it's just wrong. Of course, it's a lot easier to do this when a kid is young, when they're discovering facts of life. This is one of the facts of life. Fire is hot. Why? It don't matter. <laughs> it's hot. And lying is wrong. Why? We're talking facts over here. So when a child is discovering facts, that's a much easier for him to 
get all the facts. Once the kid gets a little older and he thinks he's got the facts and he's beyond that stage, it's a little harder now to come along and say, well, uh, uh, we forgot to tell you one fact <laughs> or 613 facts. That's a little harder to catch up. But that's what has to happen. There's got to be a way. So one of the methods, of course, is consequences. You know what they do to, to juvenile delinquents? They take them to these farms and discipline them. How do they do that? They make the kid love being there and then say, if you do that, you're out. But that's it. You do that, you're out. So they've now learned a new fact. You don't do that. That's one way of instilling a fact. But we certainly have to begin by stating the fact. And we don't do that. We don't state facts. We state theories. So when you say to a child, it's not good to lie because then nobody will ever believe you even when you're telling the truth. That's a terrible thing to say. It's not good to lie. That's where you stop. Anything you say after that will be held against you. <laughs> we'll ruin it. Anything you say after that, you destroyed the lesson. You have to share with your friends, otherwise they won't be friends with you. You just ruined it. Be nice to your friends, then they'll be nice to you. You ruined it. What was wrong with simply saying, be nice to your friends? Why do you feel a need to say anything more than that? That's a yes and no question. Be nice to your friends. Is that right or wrong? That's it. You don't need to say any more. You're not allowed to lie. Does this need commentary? Then why are you saying anything more than that? You're not allowed to lie. That's the fact. You never say, this is a tree because it's a tree. Now, if somebody says, what is wrong with eating a non-kosher sandwich? What is wrong with mixing meat and milk? The answer, God doesn't want. The ultimate truth is want. Does he want or does he not want? Because want is the beginning of all truth. Is that, is making sense a little bit now? So if a person wants to get to know God, and they sit down and say, can you prove to me that God exists? Say, well, do you really want to know him or do you just want to talk about him? You want to know God? Then why are we talking about his existence? You really want to get to know him? He's not about existence. You want to get to know him? We got to talk about his want. Because his want is the truest and deepest part of him that we know of. You want to get to know me? Don't ask me where I live. You want to get to know me? You got to find out what I want, what I desire, and what I hate. Because that's me, the yes and the no. I barely know you. <laughs> there is so much that uh, Hasidus teaches us about, about those early stirrings of creation within God.
and the further you go, the more fascinating it gets. And strangely enough, as you get really close to the ultimate unknowable essence of God, the more relevant it becomes. It's like closing a circle. You start off where you are, and you start traveling, and you're getting further and further away from where you started. And it seems like this is totally irrelevant. I mean, what has this got to do with me? And you keep going, and now it's like you're way out in outer space. You're talking about stuff you can't even describe. You don't even know what you're talking about, but you keep going and going and going. And suddenly you're back. You're back to where you live, which is what we just did. We went all the way up to where God is barely knowable and doesn't really exist, but he chooses to exist. Oh, he chooses. Oh, oh, okay. So you mean, so that's why he wants me to eat the sandwich. So you close the circle like that and it's... So on the one hand, you feel uplifted by knowing all this stuff. And on the other hand, you're totally humbled by, by what's really real. His will, not mine. My will didn't create anything. Maybe some trouble. His will created everything, including him. So if it's a choice, my way or his way, <laughs> what, what is this debate? So the Mishnah says, nullify your will before his will. Sounds like a great sacrifice. Nullify your will. <laughs> your, your will? You mean all those things you can't get anyway? You mean all those things that you want but are frustrated because you can't have them? Nullify all that? Gladly. And what do I get instead? God's will. It's a good deal. It's not a sacrifice.